If you have your Bibles, would you please open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 7? I would encourage you to open your device and get there if you don't have an actual Bible with you, as we will be referring down to it frequently. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And as you turn there, allow me just to say that this morning is a little different in that we have the joyous occasion of having three people get baptized later in service. So yeah, amen. We are eager to hear those testimonies and to see the gospel in the waters of baptism. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I'll begin by reading the passage and praying and considering what the Lord has for us in this portion of his word. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord. How to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things. How to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, yes, we pray for eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, may it be so that as your people, we believe that every word in this book is true and it is from you. And so, Lord, help us to believe that there is good news in this passage. Help us to believe that, that what your wisdom through the Apostle Paul is, 
is not bad advice, but is for the good and well-being of your people. And so, Father, we pray that the fruit of our labor would be a higher love and esteem for the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. It seems that from the youngest of ages, we are conditioned to believe that marriage is one of those rite of passages that lead to full adulthood. We see it in movies, in the stories we hear as kids, guy meets girl, they get married, they live happily ever after. Remember on the bus, we'd sing the obnoxious song if we ever saw one of our friends talking to a girl? Justin and Kim, sitting in a tree. K-I-S-S-I-N-G. First comes love, then comes marriage. My kids, they go to Black Lake Bible Camp and they're gone for the whole day, and the only thing they come back and tell me is that we played this board game called Life. I'm like, did you do anything more than that? I'm like, no, just life. And if you've ever played this board game of life, it's, it's kind of like the suburban lifestyle, and, and you kind of go through, and there's like retirement and all these different things about normal life. And if you've ever played the game, you know there's a piece on the board that everyone has to go to. Can't get out of it. It's right there, and it's the marriage piece. That if you play the rules of life, first you date someone, then you fall in love, and then you get married. It's all around us in the world that we live in, this, this sort of rite of passage. And at times, the evangelical church, not necessarily this church in particular, but the church in large can kind of implicitly play into this. That if you're not married and you're a single person, there's something kind of wrong with you. Kind of like you're wearing the scarlet letter almost. And Sam Alberry has a really helpful book if you're interested in a resource. It's called The Seven Myths of Singleness. And in the very last chapter of the book, Sam Alberry, who would say he's um, a Christian who struggles with same-sex attraction and has chosen to be celibate, he talks about the unique challenges that come with being single. And some of them, he says, when he was in seminary, he would watch some of his single friends get married. And the second they were married, the professors would offer them some leniency. In fact, I remember my very first day of orientation of seminary. It was, in fact, the, the well-known D.A. Carson who told all of us who were married. He looked at us and he said, hey, if you're married, it's better to get a C in the class and have a good marriage than to have an A and have a bad marriage. But if you're single, you should have an A. It's almost like this kind of implied, if you're married, you kind of get a little extra grace. In the same book, he talks about how he's watching his single friends get more respect from their parents. That for some reason, when you become married, you're worthy of more honor and respect. Parents treat their kids a little differently. So singleness is not a problem, according to Paul. Singleness, in fact, is what he says here, for those who are able and willing, is better. Singleness is not something that we need to try to solve. And so in this passage this morning, 
Paul is going to help us see how this unusual kind of dance between singleness and marriage is really just unhelpful in the Christian church. Both, Paul would say, have meaningful stations of life in which you can serve the Lord Jesus. And so if you notice all throughout chapter 7, as we've been going through it over the last couple of weeks, Paul seems to kind of go back and forth. He'll talk about marriage and he'll say, hey, marriage is good, protect your marriage, have a healthy marriage, but singleness is better. At the same time, don't worry, hey, if you do get married, it's not a sin, you're okay, marriage is good, singleness is better. It just seems like he keeps trying to play back and forth of helping them see that we don't need to be legalistic or dogmatic about either of these things. Because Paul says, your primary condition, your primary status as a Christian is that of someone who is in Christ. So it doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor or you're a Jew or a Gentile or even if you're a slave or a free person. What matters is that you have been called In Christ, and that's what we looked at a few weeks ago in verses 17 through 24. But in this passage, Paul wants to show the reasons why attractiveness can be part of the single condition. Because as much as Paul disagrees with the logic of the Corinthians, the Corinthians had this feeling that, man, I'm going to be macho spiritual if I just live a celibate life. The Corinthians thought that that, that the true, spiritual, wise person, mature in Christ, was the person who could practice asceticism. And Paul says, no way. Be content with who you are in Christ. Christ is who makes you and what makes you holy. But at the same time, Paul says, I like your conclusion. I just don't like how you're getting there. Paul says, technically I agree with you that singleness is better But it's not better because it makes you more spiritual. No, what makes you spiritual is Christ. But he says, I do want you to also think about singleness from a gospel-centered perspective. Because really what Paul is trying to get out through the whole chapter is this. Those who are spiritual, those who have a truly spiritual life, are not those who give themselves to another person. But a spiritual person is the person who is wholly devoted to Christ. And so Paul says, whether you are married or whether you are single, the gospel has changed you. In fact, the last passage we went over back in two weeks ago, Paul says in verse 23, you were bought with a price. You belong to Christ. That is what makes you spiritual. That he has purchased you. That he has bought you with his blood. So here's what I would say is the thrust of this whole passage that we're considering this morning. This is my main point. That in whatever situation, you are to be wholly devoted to Christ. Whether single, whether married, whether poor or rich, whether in the job of your dreams or not, Paul wants us to be wholly devoted to Christ. And so so with that said, though, Paul does help us think in a gospel-centered way about singleness. And and what I'd like for us to do, kind of keeping that main point in the back of our minds, is is to walk through this passage and, and to see how the gospel gives legitimacy to singleness. That it is not a problem, that there isn't something wrong with you, that 
unlike Judaism, which had a high value on marriage, when the gospel comes and the gospel changes everything about us, it gives us a different perspective about singleness. And so that's kind of the outline of the sermon this morning is, is three ways the gospel brings legitimacy to singleness. And if I could just give one quick commercial. It's tempting when you're a single person and you hear a, mar- a sermon on marriage to check out. I'm not married. This is for those people. And so I'm going to sit here and twiddle my thumbs. And maybe you're married and you hear there's going to be a sermon on singleness. You think, well, I'm not single. I'm married. And we check out. I would encourage us, though, if you are married, this is not necessarily something that we can just be free to ignore. We want to be a church in which we learn to love all people. And so if you are a married person, this is in many ways what you should be praying for your single friends of how they can honor Christ. And so jumping into it, the first way the gospel changes our perspective on singleness is this. The gospel shapes our ultimate joy. Do me a favor, look back down at your Bible in verse 25. Paul says, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my own judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Now Paul begins by talking about, maybe your translation might say virgin or um, handmaiden. Really what he's talking about is a young person who is just kind of coming of age to, to get ready for marriage. Back then, marriage was a lot different. Many of them were arranged There was a courtship, a contractual obligation that kind of came with it. And so as these young people were coming and thinking about getting married, Paul says, the reality is Jesus never actually said anything about this. And so that's what he kind of says there. He's like, there is no direct quotation from Christ. But as his authoritative apostle, let me give you my opinion. Let me give you my judgment. And and I want you to be clear, Paul's already said this back in chapter 7 where Christ didn't have any direct quotation about divorce to an unbeliever. It doesn't make it any less authoritative. Paul is just saying we don't have anything in which Jesus said directly on this. So here is his advice, though. Verse 26, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Now, in many ways, this is, again, Paul reiterating the principle that he has littered throughout chapter 7, especially the last passage. Wherever you are in life, Paul says, just remain. And, and you kind of see what he says there, right? He says, are you bound to a wife? Are you married? Don't, don't seek to be free. Don't think that you're being more spiritual by being single. Are, are you free from a wife? Are, are, you, are you single? Don't seek to have it. Don't, don't think that by getting married, you're getting anything spiritually from it. But then he quickly clarifies, right? Verse 28. But if you do, you have not sinned. And if, and if a betrothed woman or a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you of that. So again, Paul's principle still stands for those who are single. Hey, if you're single, don't get married. If you do, you haven't sinned. But look for the reason why he says this. Look at verse 26 again. He says, I think that in view of the present distress. Now, depending on how you interpret that little phrase, present distress, will really inform how you read the rest of chapter 7. Some people think that at the time of this letter being written, Corinth was suffering a a well-known famine. 
And so maybe there's also some other natural disaster taking place. And Paul is saying, hey, in light of the world that you live in, it's crazy. It's hard to survive. Why would you add the stress of marriage into all of that? You know, marriage and kids, just stay single. Who even knows what's going to happen to that city? That is, there's some reasonable thinking into that view. But I don't really think that's what it means. Because in verse 29, he actually elaborates. He says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. And so Paul here, actually what he's doing is he's helping them see how the gospel has changed our perspective about this temporal, earthly life that we live. You see, the gospel message is not simply that the king came 2,000 years ago, but also that the king is coming back. You see, 2,000 years ago, when, when Christmas morning happened and that little baby was sleeping in a manger, human history was completely changed. Everything changed when Christ came. And when he came the first time, he came in a life of humility and service. He lived a life of perfect righteousness. He went to the cross and he died for our sins. That anyone who would believe in Christ and turn from their sins and repentance, they can be saved Christ did not stay dead. He gloriously rose from the dead where he ascends now with the Father in his high priestly session interceding for us. But the good news of the gospel, again, is not just of what he's done, but that he's coming back. Jesus is going to have a sequel. That little baby in the manger, though, is going to come back and he's going to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is going to settle the score for all sin and all unrighteousness. As Keegan talked about last week, there will be a great division. There will be the sheep and the goats. There will be a great marriage on that day, but there will also be a great divorce for those who are not found in Christ. And so the message of the gospel gives us a perspective And so what I think Paul means by this present distress, he's talking about this time in which the church lives between the first coming and the second coming is a time that is marked by great upheaval. I think he's probably referring to some form of persecution these Christians are having or persecution that is coming. He's saying we live in this tension between Christ coming and him coming again and it is going to be hard for believers. We have many enemies And so Paul is trying to get them to have a perspective, a gospel-shaped perspective, that changes how they view this temporal, earthly life that they live. If you know the future, and that's kind of what he means, right? He says time is short. I mean, it's compressed. You know how it's going to end. We have the rest of the story it changes how you see things. Last summer, my wife and I, we went to New York, and we did all the touristy things. We saw Wicked, but we also went to the top of the Rockefeller Center. And when you're on a huge skyscraper, and you can look all around, you can see the water and the city and the different boroughs, and it gives you this perspective. It kind of reorients you. And so what Paul is kind of saying is saying, in, in light of the gospel, of knowing that Christ is coming back, it should help us loosen 
our joys and satisfaction in temporal things. And this is where Paul starts giving some illustrations and we scratch our heads a little bit, right? Look at verse 29, the middle of verse 29. He says, from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Now, some of my golf buddies, their wives may think he does this pretty well, right? And so we think, what, what, what are you talking about, Paul? And he goes on, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. Paul is saying that these are good things. He's not telling you to not do them, but he's saying, why would you treat something that's so temporary? If, if Christ is going to come back and all things are going to go black, if all your business dealings, all your relationships are just temporary, why would you treat them as an ultimate thing? So really what, what Paul is saying is kind of what Jesus says, don't, don't store for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but store for yourself treasures in heaven. So, so Paul is kind of saying like this, yes, in this life we will weep, but we shouldn't weep with those who don't have future in mind. We will have joys in life. Yes, we will. But it's not our ultimate joy. We know what's coming. Yes, we're going to buy stuff and plan businesses. And, and, and all of that is great. At the same time, everything you have built is on a crash course to going black when Jesus returns. And the same thing is true for the institution of marriage. Yes, even marriage, Paul says, it's temporary. It's, it's all going to go away when Christ comes back. You, consider what Jesus says in Matthew 22, verse 30. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. And for some of us, that's kind of hard. We think like, no way. Part of the joy of heaven is, is reuniting with my late spouse or my family. And, and, and sometimes I think as Christians, again, we, we have this temptation to maybe idolize marriage. That we take a good thing and we make it an ultimate thing. And Paul says, in light of the gospel, your ultimate joy should never be in anything that's temporary. Your ultimate joy should be in your devotion to Christ. So how does this particular view of the gospel bring legitimacy to singleness, right? Here's how. Because a Christian knows that since marriage is only temporary, that it's all fading to black, that a single person has the opportunity to say with their singleness that what is most important about them, that what brings them most joy is not another person, it's not a relationship, but it's the Lord Jesus. Paul says, in light of this time that we were living between now and the return of Christ, a single person has the opportunity to showcase that their ultimate joy and identity is not in another person, but it's in the Lord. And so the message of the gospel, it shapes what's ultimately true about us. The gospel redefines what is most important. To, to say it very clearly and succinctly, here's what I believe Paul is teaching in these couple of verses. 
that it would be unwise to locate one's ultimate joy and significance in that which is temporary. And so maybe for a second, don't even think about marriage. Think about your work. Think about what you're building. Think about your net worth. It would be unwise to put your ultimate sense of joy into that. The gospel shapes us in such a way that Christ becomes our ultimate joy. And since marriage is temporary like everything else, Paul says, if you're single, hey, don't sweat it. It's all going to go away. Marriage like the rest of the world. And so at the same time, Paul says, single people, you have a unique advantage to showcase what true love for Christ should look like. Now, I've been saying a few things, and I, I, I keep saying that marriage is going to go away, and I should maybe clarify my thoughts here a little bit. Earthly, temporal marriages will go away, but there will be one marriage that does exist, and that is the marriage between Christ and his church. And so let's do a thought experiment for a moment. Let's imagine the happiest married couple there ever was. I can't imagine they've been in the last hundred years, but maybe... But imagine whoever that couple was throughout human history, they had the happiest and most rich marriage possible between two sinners. Okay, take that joy, take that harmony, take that peace. And it is only a slight picture of the joy and the peace and the glory that will be for all of God's people at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Even on your best days of marriage, it is a slight glimpse to the glories that will be had for Christ and his bride, the church. And so let us not idolize something that is ultimately pointing us to a greater sign and picture in the gospel. It is in Christ we find our ultimate joy and crown. So more than this, Paul is saying that the celibate life is legitimate because ultimately the gospel changes our perspective on what brings us ultimate joy. But secondly, the gospel, it shapes our ultimate mission. And we're going to see that in verses 32 through 35. So Paul says, I want you to be free from anxieties or, or concerns or, or worries. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided, and the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. And so Paul now kind of gives a few more practical or pragmatic reasons why he prefers singleness. Because again, if the gospel message is true, if Christ indeed has bought us and we are owned by him and we serve him as Lord, the gospel shapes now how we live our lives. That anywhere or anything that you are doing, you are to do it under the lordship of Christ. That, that, that is a Christian's mission now. That whether I'm eating or whether I'm drinking, I do all things to the glory of God. But Paul says... The single person has an advantage. The single person is not worried about as much the things of the world. Now, I want to inject a little bit of pastoral nuance into this, right? There, there could be a temptation to think that if you're a married person, you look at your single friends and you think, like, what do you do all day? Do you just sit at home for 80 hours and have nothing to do? And, you know, 
you're not married and so you don't have all these responsibilities. Well, I, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think we need to be careful. Singleness is hard. Single people, just like married people, have to pay their bills and make their meals and do dishes and laundry and take care of their households. And with all of that, they don't even have a helpmate to help them split any of that load. And so I think it's important for us who are married to remember that it's not always easy being a single person. Not, 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 I think the best illustration I've heard is, is marriage is kind of like your screen door. Where you have the flies on the outside trying to get in and you have the flies on the inside trying to get out. And, and married people, they look at their friends and say, you can just go golfing whenever you feel like it. You don't have to ask anyone. You can just go. And single people are like, you always have someone to talk to at the end of your day and debrief and, and, and have prayer and, and have companionship. And, 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 and both are kind of comparing the best and worst parts of their stations. And so for us who are married, I hope that we care about the single people in our church. I hope that Hope Community Church is a place, whether you are married or you are single, that you have meaningful community meaningful ministry. I pray that, that married people would invite single people on vacations, that you would do life together, that in home groups it wouldn't be weird if there was a single person amongst other married couples. But even though singleness at times can be hard, there is a reality that there is freedom in singleness. Maybe an opportunity to go visit a missionary presents before you and maybe you think you're a married person you're like oh I'd really love to go visit this missionary and so you go talk to your spouse and they say well you know we kind of made some commitments with that money and I'm not really sure and you're kind of thinking yeah you're, you're, you're probably right you know in, in marriage you have like two competing values and 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 goals and you have to kind of bring them together you have to communicate and sometimes there's conflict when those clash and you know where the single person can hear the opportunity to support a missionary and say, I'm in. And, and so Paul says singleness is legitimate because ultimately the gospel shapes what is most important and a single person can actually do this a little more. They, they have some freedoms. And so I, I just want to maybe speak personally to those in our church who are single. Paul here, I think, is encouraging you to steward your singleness well. To take the singleness you have and to be anxious about the things of the Lord. I don't want to discourage you. If there's some people here who, who want to get married, who, who are single and they want to find a spouse, that's a good thing to want. But what I am telling you is that your desire to serve Christ and your contentment in him should always be greater than your desire to find a spouse. And so, to your spiritual devotion to Christ as a single person, are you stewarding the extra freedom you have to serve Christ in his mission? And I think also, as I, as I read these verses this week, I kept thinking of two things and just two brief implications. One, um, this passage to me is very clear as to why vows of celibacy, I think, are so wrong. I think the Roman Catholic Church had something right in which they moved towards priests being single. 
But moving it to the point of having to take a vow of celibacy, I think ignores Paul's pastoral nuance. Even if you kind of look, Paul goes on to say this, I, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but, but to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul is saying again, like, hey, it's better, but at the same time, you're not sitting if you do get married. And, and I think, unfortunately, the Roman Catholic Church has seen the bad fruit of, of avoiding marriage when people cannot control themselves and all of the abuse scandals. Yet at the same time, I had a friend in seminary named Joe who was applying for a lot of pastoral positions and maybe a few associate pastor jobs, a few youth pastor jobs, and Joe kept getting denied. And they kept saying, Joe, we love your preaching, you have good theology, you're a great guy, but you're single. And Joe, lunch one time, was like very frustrated and thinking, doesn't Paul say it's better? Shouldn't that be like, I should be on top of the resume pile instead of the bottom just because I don't have a wife? And, and, and some of us think like, well, you know, a 24-year-old working with like teenage girls in a youth group, is there, is there wisdom? Paul says it's better. Certainly there should be wisdom. And so I don't know, I, I look at these passages and I think vows of celibacy are wrong. Discriminating against single pastors is equally wrong. Singleness in Paul's mind allows for your for the gospel to shape your ultimate mission of being anxious about the Lord, serving the Lord. And lastly, in the last couple of verses, Paul shows us how the gospel shapes our ultimate calling. And so do me a favor, look back uh, a few verses in, in verse 21 of chapter 7. Paul gave an example concerning slaves or bondservants. If we take that same principle and we apply it to singleness, it makes a whole lot of sense to what Paul has been saying in the whole chapter. So 1 Corinthians 7 verse 21, were you single when called? Like when you became a Christian. Were you single when you became a Christian? Paul says, don't, don't be concerned about it. But, but if you do get married, that's great. Verse 22, for he who is called in the Lord as a single person is, is really married to the Lord. Likewise, he who was married when he was called is married to Christ. But here's the most important part. You were bought with a price. And so Paul really here kind of just reiterates a lot of the things he's been saying. And if you've kind of noticed throughout chapter 7, he's mentioned different types of singles. You kind of have the young singles, and then he has those who are engaged. Back then that was a much bigger deal. Contractions were, you know, part of that. And then he's talking about the widows. And so he kind of goes on to explain all these different types of single groups. And he says, if anyone is not behaving properly, if the passion is too strong, get married. It's not a sin, right? And then, and then in verse 39, Paul says, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. And so for a widow, Paul says, if, if you want to get married, that's great. The only qualification for a Christian when you marry someone that you marry another Christian. And so I appreciate Paul again here with this, this pastoral nuance. He is not trying to be legalistic. What he cares about is Christian liberty. A Christian can easily be single or married and both can equally live under the rule and reign of Christ. And so Paul says, don't feel like you're some macho spiritual Christian because you abstain from something. Be a Christian because of who you are ultimately called to be. And so a true Christian is not someone who finds more spiritual prowess in whether they're being single or being 
married. I think another very important point that Paul is making here is Paul seems to be saying that those who do not participate in sexual activity are no worse off. Years ago, I'm kind of ashamed for watching this movie, and I won't give the title of the movie, but there's a movie with Steve Carell, and in the movie, he's an older man, and his friends find out that he's never had sex. And his friends were horrified at the thought. And the whole movie is really on this plot of getting their friend to finally have intercourse. And really, the, the message of the movie is this. You're not really living up to your full human experience unless you're having sex. And isn't this the culture we live in right now? In which all of your identity and your orientation is now based on your sexuality? Paul seems to think for a single person, you're completely fine. How many of us forget that, that our Lord himself was single, who never had intercourse? And so I think we need to be careful of letting culture kind of bring in this view that, that the pinnacle of life is pleasure and sex. Paul says, I think you do better if you're single. And it's completely legitimate for someone to choose celibacy for the sake of the gospel. I mentioned this already, but to a few of you, I just want to be a little bit more clear. Some of you in this room, you might cringe every single time I say singleness is better. Maybe you're single and you want to find a spouse and you desire something good and, and you're hearing Paul say, hey, it's better and it doesn't feel better to you. It feels like a curse. I just want to say a, a few things here. Unmet desires and unmet expectations can be some of life's toughest trials. But I want to encourage you here. I hope that you see as a single person that the gospel is good news for you. That you have a real opportunity while you wait, and potentially you may wait the rest of your life, to show that Jesus is better. That Jesus brings you your true sense of calling and worth and status and identity. I said it earlier, but I think it's worth repeating. I think it's fine to search for a wife. I think it's fine to even at times introduce single people to each other. Our primary aim, though, should not simply be to get people to get married or for you to find a spouse. Our primary aim should always be to have a wholly devoted life to Christ. Because that, in many ways, is the point, isn't it? Look again, would you, at verse 31. I take that back. Verse 35. Paul says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul says, listen, I'm not trying to give you a burden you can't deal with. I'm trying to help you. What is important for a Christian is that the gospel completely changes us. It changes where we find our ultimate sense of joy. It changes what our primary mission in life is all about. It changes what, what is my most important calling and identity. And none of those things can be found in another person or another job or how much money we have. All of those things are found in the Lord Jesus. And so I believe that the person who wrote, who, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write 1 Corinthians, I believe that he was single. 
I believe that the Apostle Paul, if he was married, he would have said something about it when he talked a lot about marriage and, and remarriage and divorce, but he didn't say anything. And so Paul says for his own life, this is his opinion, his authoritative opinion, singleness is better because it allows for him to be wholly devoted to Christ. But if you do marry, it's not wrong. That's good. Enjoy your marriage. Protect your marriage. Because both marriage and singleness have a unique opportunity of proclaiming the glories of the gospel. And that's what Christians are all about. Because of what Christ has done, of living and dying for our sins, we now live lives that are wholly devoted to him. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, it is our deepest desire for you to know Christ personally. Any relationship that you've had that's brought joy and meaning is really just a small picture that is pointing you to the ultimate relationship that you were meant to have. And that is with your creator. And so because we have sinned, because we have separated ourselves from our creator, because we are worthy of his righteous judgment and his wrath, we stood hopeless. But God in his great love and the second person of the Trinity, he came and he died for your sins. He died so that you can be forgiven. He died so that you can have this true, ultimate love and joy and mission in life. If you would believe in him, and repent from your sins. And so Hope Community Church, I hope that we are not like the world in which marriage is a little higher above being single. Singleness is simply a station in life in which every single adult at some point will have. Some of us are single just for a short while, maybe in our 20s until we get married. But the reality is, as many of us who are married will probably be single again. It's actually quite rare for a couple to die the same day. And so at some point, many of us will become widows and widowers. And so what matters is, is not whether or not we have a relationship with another person. What matters is that whether single or married, we are wholly devoted to Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray, God, that through the work of your spirit, that you would help us to have faith in Christ, that we'd be wholly devoted in whatever station of life that we are in. God, thank you for the message of the gospel, that it's not just a message that saves us from the penalty of our sin, but also from the power. Lord, help us to be people who are so reoriented by the message of the gospel that it would shape our ultimate sense of joy and mission and calling. And Lord, I want to pray for the relationships here at Hope Community Church. God, I pray that as a body, God, whether we are rich or poor, educated or non-educated, married or single, God, through our love and mutual care for one another, that we would be a picture of the good news of the gospel. May this body here represent the type of love and connection and relationship that exists between you and your body. So Lord, give us faith. And I pray for those, God, this morning who are single and who are struggling with loneliness, or maybe struggling with 
sense of anticlimax or disappointment, I pray, Lord, that they would find their rest and their true peace in Christ. And may your body come around them and invite them for dinner. Be their friends. Help them to be the church. So, Lord, give us grace for all these things. We pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.